0: Welcome to Civicus Voices, a Civicus podcast where we hear from people, communities, and organisations defending human rights. I'm Arti Narsi. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an intersectional feminist, former journalist, and I work as a civic space research officer for Civicus. I love listening to stories on the ground and using these stories as a tool to create change. This season in the podcast, it's all about freedom of peaceful assembly. If you don't know what that means, in simple terms, it's about the right to protest. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, I encourage you to start at the beginning with episode 1, where you'll learn more about the basics of protesting, that is, protesting 101. Over the next few months, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into what it means to protest for different people in different parts of the world in varying contexts. Today, we'll be speaking about what protesting looks like if you live in a country where your right to protest is limited. That is, you don't have the freedom to express your actions and opinions. And here I'm specifically speaking about countries that are rated as repressed or closed. What exactly do I mean when I use the term repressed or closed? On the Civicus Monitor, we rate countries according to a five-point rating system open narrowed obstructed repressed and closed if you live in countries rated as open it means you have free space to exercise your fundamental rights if you live in a repressed country it means that your rights are severely restricted and if you live in a closed country it means that there is a complete closure of the space to exercise your rights When you live in these types of countries, the restriction of rights takes place in multiple different ways. For example, if there's a protest happening, you frequently witness internet shutdowns. Independent websites that report on the actual events happening can be shut down or restricted, so there's lack of access to information and communication. This is commonly used as a tactic by governments to restrict the right to information, but also restrict the right to freedom of expression. We're also seeing states passing legislation where they limit the types of protests that can take place. So you have to ask for specific permission. Often the permission is not granted. They may limit the place in which protests take place. And often these protests would be met with force. And then we have detention of protesters. So protesters are exercising their right to go out and protest in the streets. They may face arrest detention. They may be beaten, physical force used by authorities or the officials, and they may be prosecuted on trumped up charges. So this gives you a sense of the types of restrictions that take place in countries that are rated as repressed or closed. And it can be incredibly difficult and dangerous, but somehow the people who are fighting for incredibly important rights, they persevere because they believe it's worth it. But often at times they have to kind of get creative to find ways how to move around or navigate these restrictions. So one amazing example of a creative form of protest in a very restrictive environment is what we've been seeing in Afghanistan. Since the takeover of the Taliban, we've seen women and girls taking to the streets to protest. They are asking for the right to education, which is being denied to them. And somehow the movement has evolved and become even more creative Recently, there have been the creation of secret schools in Afghanistan where some Afghanistani families offer up their homes to set up these secret schools for girls. And this is in defiance of the Taliban rule. And basically, these young girls are saying, We want the right to be educated and we will not obey the Taliban rule and these repressive rules that are being put forward by the Taliban. And there's other examples of creative protests happening in other parts of the world. For example, if we move to the MENA region, we see the use of emojis that has been used by Palestinians who are fighting against the occupation and fighting against online censorship. And they are using social media as a creative means of expressing themselves And often finding ways to kind of navigate around the government censorship. So using less traditional ways of expressing their stories and expressing the movement online. And this is exactly what we'll hear about today. So we're going to be speaking to an organization in Palestine who has campaigned for digital rights. And then we move to Colombia where we'll be speaking to organizers of Alparo Nacional or the national strike in Colombia who faced incredible repressions but still persevered through to fight for social, political and economic rights. So let's kick off the show. I'm going to be speaking to Nadim Nashif, the founder and executive director of Hemla, the Arab Center for Social Media and Advancement. Hemler is doing some incredible research, monitoring and training, as well as actively campaigning for the digital rights of Palestinians. For example, they campaign for services like PayPal and Google Maps to be open and inclusive for Palestinians. And they get quite creative in the work that they do. Nadim, thank you so much for joining us on Civicus Voices. You're welcome. So for those of our listeners who are less familiar with your work and the circumstances, please tell us about the kinds of repressions that Palestinians are facing at the moment and how has Hemla worked against this?
1: Yes, yeah, so basically, uh, Palestinian people have been living under occupation in the last seven decades. And uh, basically this occupation um, obviously has uh, lots of oppression and repression and many methods um, in the offline world. And uh, as the technology progressed and um, our life became part of the internet, this oppression and repression and this uh, kind of um, power relationship moved also into the online. So in many cases, there are attempts to prevent Palestinians from experiencing their freedom of expression on the online by pressuring companies, by doing arrest of people because of what they wrote or said on the online, by also pressuring companies to do the siege because Palestinians are living under siege by the Israeli government. And this siege is not only physical, this is something that was also transformed to the virtual. So meaning that, for example, Many of the online platforms are not accessible to Palestinians because of different excuses, because of uh, Israeli pressure, because they have convinced company that it doesn't work for them. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction PayPal. So PayPal is one of the companies that preventing Palestinian. From using it while it's allowing israelis to using it and practicing like a very clear way discrimination against palestinians so again the power relationship moved into the online where the oppression is happening and we are as organization recording this documenting this and fighting for the rights and the freedoms of palestinians on the online
0: the Palestinian civil society is facing an incredible amount of restrictions. How does the government of Israel's recent attacks on Palestinian civil society, human rights defenders and the media affect these organizations' advocacy and their mobilization activities? Yes,
1: there is an ongoing attempt to silence the Palestinian civil society by either like uh, blaming us or being anti-Semites or being terrorists. And these are heavy accusations that have chilling effects. And I think the aim is to paralyze the Palestinian civic society from being active, from recording specifically the human rights violations and atrocities and war crimes that is being done against Palestinians. So this is something that is ongoing. And unfortunately, sometimes also we find that other governments also cooperate to a certain extent instead of rejecting these accusations. When we are speaking about Palestinian human rights organizations that have been there for four decades uh, that have been recording you know they are winners of awards they are internationally recognized for their professional work for decades clearly have nothing to do with terrorism have nothing to do with anti-semitism they are all for uh, human rights and democratic values and it's clearly like a false accusation so sometimes we wonder like why there's no strong reactions against these allegations And it's a clear game to paralyze and silence the voices. I mean, this is not only actually happening in Palestine, Uh, also we're seeing shrinking spaces all over. We see it in many oppressive other regimes that basically civic society and people uh, who are working for human rights are being stigmatized or colored as a terrorist or terrorist sympathizers and supporters. And it's heavy. It's a heavy accusation. It's serious accusation. And it's being also, unfortunately, being misused or played. Sometimes even in our context, lots of the organizations, any outstanding personality or activist or a body is being somehow facing smear campaigns. And this is something that ongoing reality that we are trying to face and to develop tools how to deal with it. And it's not simple at all.
0: And we've seen recently the rise of youth in the Palestinian movement, particularly during the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, for example, the youth were at the forefront. How important is it for youth movements to develop online activism in response to these evictions and the repressions that are taking place? And how do you think online activism compares to other forms of activism in Palestine?
1: Yes, I, I think it's very important to, to have the online activism and to have, especially when you're in such a situation of occupation and oppression and you're, you're having this human rights violations daily basis, the camera becomes a, a tool of resistance, becomes a very important tool. Actually, you know, the Israeli government started legislation around preventing live streaming, criminalizing photography criminalizing video making and this comes on the background that for many Palestinians the camera is the only defense that they have uh, from soldiers and violent settlers who are attacking them on daily uh, basis and in many cases also home evictions house evictions being prevented because of this live stream so this is really important Uh, campaigning is really important digital activism in general is is really important and we showed that i mean if we study the uh, Sheikh jarrah experience of 2021 And how much there was a global uh, solidarity online movement coming in and pressuring and uh, in many ways also preventing these house evictions because we are talking about people that until today they are uh, resilient and they are there in their houses and uh, the the eviction plan did not succeed as uh, they wanted. Part of it is also because of the international solidarity movement that was created with these people.
0: You've mentioned, you know, that there's a siege going on both online and offline. We've seen Palestinians taking to the streets, for example, during the Save Sheikh Jarrah protests. But there's an interesting online creativity that is forming in Palestine and on social media in particular. And I'm referring here to the watermelon campaign, which has become a significant symbol of the Palestinian movement for for freedom against the occupation. Can you tell us how they are using these creative platforms to form unusual ways of protests
1: yes so palestinian people have been trying to find creative ways and doing creative ways of of how to to still practice their identity because our identity is also something that we are attacked uh, including for example the palestinian flag so palestinian flag until today by the way uh, is not allowed to be uh, raised uh, by the israeli uh, army Uh, So Palestinians uh, in the last decades found different creative ways to express the Palestinian flag and the Palestinian colors, which are the watermelon colors. So uh, instead of raising a flag, they would draw a watermelon. And with the technology and with the algorithms coming up, and in many cases also the social media is cooperating with the Israeli side and is deleting many uh, keywords that are related to Palestinians, For example, uh, Palestinian personalities or Palestinian political movements that by the US administration or by the Israeli side are considered as a terrorist uh, organizations and then their name is not allowed to be written on social media. Not, Not even if you are criticizing them or putting anything. So many people write these words in a way that is coming to overcome the artificial intelligence. So for example, instead of having the letters come together, they write like points between letters. So those are kind of different ways of how to still express yourself and to mention the things that you want to mention and not replying to the rules or the boundaries that somebody else is trying to limit you. About whom you can speak and then in what way and uh, what kind of, what is legal or or legitimate to have, uh, especially when it comes to the national identity that is being so much oppressed in the last decades.
0: And I think you touched on a really important point there. So Palestinians are pushing the boundaries online, but this comes with an incredible risk. We've seen this in our work in the Civicus Monitor, for example, where we document restrictions. So what has the reaction been to this sort of activism, both from the government, from obviously the Israeli occupation forces, and then again, you know, what has the reaction been amongst allies who are in support of this movement?
1: From the Israeli side, basically, there is always attempt to criminalize the Palestinian narrative, in order to prevent it. And the general aim would be to manipulate the system in a way that you downplay the Palestinian narrative and story, and that you would raise the Israeli story. And this is being done by criminalizing a Palestinian activists and sending them to jail, sometimes even for really like sentences and posts that you don't understand how. People are in jail for this. So, for example, a young teenager from Jerusalem posted on Facebook something like that we have to go to Al-Aqsa Mosque and to defend it from Israeli settlers. And for this, he spent a year and a half in jail. So not even mentioning any kind of violence or call for violence, but just saying this is our holy place. We should be there to defend it. It means that you will be sent to jail. And there are so many examples like this that we are seeing in the last years. And there are so many regulations that Israelis are doing. One of them is, by the way, the Facebook law that now they are trying to put. I mean, officially it comes to deal with harmful content, but it means that basically anything that the Israeli side would not like would be sent to courts. And in one side, the second side cannot defend even itself with secret evidence can order the companies to take down uh, these contents that by them it's illegal. So there are so many tactics being used to uh, downplay the Palestinian voice and the Palestinian narrative on social media.
0: And I think, as you said, you know, it's a chilling price to pay for activism. We are seeing that people are are behind bars. But on the other hand, how do you think allies can best support organizations like yourselves and activists on the ground in Palestine, including international organizations? What do you think the international community needs to do to support the Palestinian cause?
1: I think it's very important that we take a firm stand when there is a human rights violations happening all over the globe. I think we should coordinate better and have an intersectional uh, approach. I think it's important to also share experience between allies and civic societies, especially that also the methods of oppression are being so much repeated in the different contexts, especially in the Global South. And in many cases, Global North is also cooperating and supporting these uh, oppressive regimes, unfortunately. So I think uh, we have lots of uh, things to do also globally, especially when it comes to the time that we are living, that it's uh, online, that everything is so quickly spreading, that we are being updated about what's happening now in Palestine, in Myanmar, in Kashmir, and other places, and that we can share experiences with each other and support each other.
0: Thank you so much, Nadim, for joining us in Civicus Voices.
1: You're most welcome.
0: That was Nadim Nashif. And I think what really stood out for me in that interview is that young Palestinians are putting their lives on their line. They're in the front line every day and they're using incredible tools like social media, like digital activism to kind of get around the restrictions in a very obviously repressed situation that Palestinians are currently facing. Now, moving from Palestine to a different country and on the ground perspective of what it means to be involved in a protest in a context and in a country that is incredibly repressed and where protesters face a lot of backlash. Sandra Sierra is one of the organizers of Al Paro Nacional or the national strike in Colombia. Now, these strikes took place over several months in 2021 and came as a result of a tax reform bill. However, protests were made with incredible amount of police repression. Some protesters died as a result, others were injured, others were even reported missing, while many were detained. Sandra explains to us why she didn't think the movement would gain so much momentum and that once they were organized, people joined because they were frustrated, but they were also motivated to take to the streets. Let's take a listen to her story.
2: the national strike, mainly, we organized from the neighborhoods with different people. It was a moment to meet other people and kind of join together in our frustration, but also in our desire for a change. Many times when there is like a protest in the surrounding areas, you always have police doing stops and searches. And this kind of intimidates the people from going there. One time we were with some friends and they did a stop and search. You know, we had some scissors and some paper and they kind of took away the scissors. But it was this paper scissors, very small. And they were going to take one of my friends because he didn't have his original documents on him. And these kind of things kind of intimidating of the police from the start. The media says the complete opposite that really happened during the protests. This is uh, very frustrating, and I think it's one of the most important tools that the government has to kind of do repression, to kind of shut the voice of the people that are on the ground and the violence against the protest. If I think of a moment that stayed with me, seeing uh, youth uh, bleeding, you know, uh, after being hit by, by the by the police and of course this this is I've seen like so so up close somebody who you've been with you feel like you understand this person it's his frustration and then seeing that he's bleeding and you don't know what's going to happen to this person this is one of these moments that really stays with you the most you feel like you don't know what to do that you don't know how this happens. is unfair basically because you believe that what we're doing is so just and it's so right but also the good moments that stay with me the most is seeing kind of like the people in the neighborhood cooking and taking pots to the street making food for the people who've been protesting also another thing that is typical of you know being repressed is that the government just really doesn't listen it, it just really doesn't care it's like we are putting forward a, a problem of hunger of unemployment of poverty and the response for the government is you are mad or you are terrorist and instead of solving the problems that is making the people go outside instead of sitting and saying, what can we do to negotiate? What can we do to make things better? Why is this happening? Why is there so many people outside protesting? So I think one of the biggest ways that you feel repressed is by just not being listened and just being treated as rebel without cost. Where I see in the streets, is a lot of rebels with cost.
0: That was Sandra Sierra. And you can hear the emotion that she expressed talking about the protests. Where protesters were missing, people died, people put their lives on the front line. And this is the situation that happens and unfolds in countries and contexts where there is a lot of repression and when there isn't much space to advocate for your fundamental rights. I also think it's important to think about the role of the media that she touched on there, where in a country where the space is very repressive, often there is huge government control over the media representation. And in this case, you can see how mainstream media was used as a tool or a mouthpiece of the government and how that can play a role in changing the narrative or the reasons or motivations behind. Protests. And the last thing I think which I draw from that interview, you know, is the solidarity of communities, how people came together to support each other in different ways as neighbors and as people with a common struggle. Well, that's it for our second episode. I hope you learned something about the realities of activists on the ground in repressed and close situations, the types of tactics that they are using to get around the restrictions. But also I think this episode really highlighted to me that the price of activism can be death, it can be detention, um, and it's an incredibly chilling one, the price that they are paying to put their lives on the line to demand fundamental rights. If you're interested in additional resources on protests, I suggest you take a look at the online Global Protest Tracker by Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's a really interesting and cool tracking system that keeps a good log of protests internationally and also includes some protests in repressed spaces. This season on Civica's Voices, we'll be digging deeper into the right to protest, looking at how protests are taking place in all parts around the globe. How activists are kind of using different tactics to protest for their fundamental rights. We'll release new episodes every two weeks, and next time we'll be looking at youth in protests, Specifically, what types of protests are happening with youth involvement? How does youth activism reflect on the ground? You can find Civicus online and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe, listen, and rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our brilliant guests featured on today's episode. Civicus Voices is produced by Amal Atrakuti, Alna Schitts, Jermaine Krieger, and the Civicus team. My name is Arti Narsi. Goodbye.